We've had one question come up that we thought we would address in this mini episode. We encourage anyone who has questions about the podcast or cases that we've covered to contact us through the website, Facebook, or Twitter. Because there's interest, we're going to talk a little bit about the Danville Papers. We've posted images of them to our website with this episode and added the Danville locations to this episode's interactive map for reference. For those listeners who aren't familiar with this story, the Danville Papers were found on the Indian Horse Trail near the scene of the December 9, 1978 EAR attack on Liberta Court. One page is a hand-drawn map with some writing on the back, including the word punishment. The second discusses the writer's troubles with a sixth grade teacher, and the third is a school paper about General George Custer. There is speculation that two of the words on the punishment page are Snelling and J-E-N-E for Jen, Jenny, or the beginning of a misspelled Jennifer. Obviously, if the page was in fact dropped by the EAR and does say Snelling and Jennifer, that could draw a direct line between the VR and EAR. We've kept our minds open to this possibility, mainly because Larry Poole, former Orange County cold case investigator, believed it may be significant and could point to the VR. Investigator Poole originally put together the DNA in the ONS cases and coordinated with Contra Costa after their EAR DNA turned out to match the ONS profile. He's tried to remain open to all theories and suspects until they are factually excluded. Our biggest question regarding these pages is whether or not there is any direct evidence that they were dropped by the EAR. We've been told by multiple law enforcement sources we trust that there are no confirmed EAR fingerprints. By that, we mean the same unidentified prints found at more than one scene. In California, almost everyone with a professional license, including those in the medical fields, real estate agents, teachers, accountants, law enforcement, and security services, car salesmen, public drivers, and people who work with children or the elderly, have their fingerprints on file with both the state and federal databases. Also, anyone who's been in the military or worked in a government job has their prints in APHIS. Presumably, Contra Costa pulled prints from the pages. Each page should have had the author's prints all over it, especially on the edge where it would have been held when it was ripped from the notebook. So, did the prints from all of the pages match each other? Did they match any suspected EAR prints? Did they match any prints in APHIS? If the prints aren't on file, that eliminates not just people with professional and military careers, but also those who have volunteered at church or as a youth coach scout leaders, foster parents, anyone who has been arrested, and people who have a concealed weapons permit. Are these fingerprints still unidentified? So if law enforcement hasn't been able to identify the owner of the pages through fingerprints, that either means that there were no identifiable prints, or the author has avoided being fingerprinted his entire life. If there were no prints on the pages, what does that mean? Were they wiped of prints? If that's the case, it's pretty obvious that they weren't dropped unknowingly, by accident. That certainly fits with the VR and EAR MO, but only insofar as he liked to plant false leads to confuse the police. If that's the case, then the pages won't lead to the EAR, but rather to someone he was trying to frame. The only other direct evidence likely to be associated with the pages would be a DNA profile developed from skin cells deposited on the paper. 
Again, the areas gripped to rip the pages from the notebook would be an obvious source. Even if there were multiple male profiles on the pages, they could still use YSTR testing to see if they have a match to the known EAR profile. Did they find the EAR's DNA on the pages? Did they find other unidentified male profiles on them? Was it the same profile on all of the pages? If there is no direct evidence linking the papers to the EAR, what is the circumstantial evidence and how compelling is that? The only reason there is any thought that they might be connected to the EAR is that they were found by law enforcement out looking for clues after an attack. The victim's house backed onto the trail and the papers were found on the trail approximately one-third of a mile south of the attack, in an area near where the tracking dogs lost the EAR's scent. That location on the old railroad tracks was inaccessible to cars, so it did not fall out of a vehicle, as some have speculated. That means in order for it to be associated with the EAR, it fell from a pocket or bag, or he deliberately planted it there as a red herring, to make investigators look in the wrong direction. As far as we can ascertain, the Liberta court victim did not describe seeing or hearing a bag during the attack. It's unknown how often the EAR carried a bag, so it's anyone's guess as to whether or not he had one that night. Looking at the two other Danville attacks, and the one further south down the Iron Horse Trail in San Ramon, none of these victims mention being aware of a bag. This is most significant in the last Danville attack, where he was confronted by the husband and dropped the shoelaces he was holding in his hand. He was not carrying a bag when he made his escape, and he didn't leave one behind. We also have to ask ourselves, even if he were carrying a bag, why would he put those random papers in his special attack kit? If they didn't fall out of a car or bag, then that leaves a pocket. This seems to make the least sense of all. It's clear that the EAR was never random in his choice of outfits. He was extremely careful to rotate different masks, gloves, and shoes. There was no consistent jacket, pants, or shirt description either. He never seemed to be wearing any type of work uniform or outfit associated with a particular career or profession. Given all of this, it's likely that he changed into his specifically chosen attack outfit before he went out prowling for the night. Why would he have stuffed the notebook pages in his pockets on his way out to an attack? Neither the VR nor EAR are ever known to have accidentally left a personal item behind, even during the multiple times he was being chased. Nothing except shoelaces ever accidentally fell out of his bag or pockets at any other scene. The accidental drop theory also assumes that the EAR was inattentive and failed to notice both the item dropping and remaining on the ground. He was not being chased from Liberta Court that night, and there is no explanation for that type of sudden carelessness. There are no known samples of the EAR's handwriting for comparison, and the writings don't contain any familiar EAR phrases. We're not handwriting experts, but it's not clear to us that the handwriting matches across the three documents. What does a forensic handwriting analyst say? Did the same person write all three pages? Are there indications that the author was left-handed? Is there anything in the execution of the documents that circumstantially points to the EAR? As we've said before, we're not here to try to get into the attacker's head. This includes not guessing about why he did what he did and not making any assumptions about his life or habits that would close our minds to potential suspects. We're focused less on the type of person who committed these crimes and more on the known facts. 
That puts us a bit at odds with one of the main arguments put forth for connecting the Danville Papers to the EAR. The anger expressed in the Mad is the Word paper and the apparent word punishment on the back of the map are widely cited as proof that they must belong to the EAR. While we agree there is no doubt that the EAR was extremely angry, everything beyond that is total speculation. The papers appear to be written by a young person, and teens are often overly dramatic and feel victimized. Most of us remember slamming our bedroom doors and then writing angry entries in our diaries about hating our parents because they were so unfair, usually over something minor like homework, chores, or curfew. There is nothing sadistic or sociopathic in the papers. No threats towards the teacher or the world, just a lot of the author feeling sorry for himself and chafing against authority. No teacher reading that paper would call the parents or the police. Nobody would be suggesting the author was a danger to himself or others. None of this is to say that it couldn't have been written by the EAR, but that's not the same thing as saying that it should be used to prove a connection. Feeling that something is consistent with the EAR should not transform it into it had to be his. We find a lot of details about the paper really interesting and possibly informative if it was written by the EAR but it's random speculation about possibilities, not any kind of evidence. We don't have a lot of comment about the Custer paper. It reads like a factual school report without any real signs of the author's voice. We can't imagine what the purpose of the paper is other than a school assignment, but it's odd that it doesn't have the normal name, date, class, and or teacher's name written in the upper right. Maybe it was a draft page. The punishment page is a lot more interesting. It is so tempting for us to read that as some type of statement of motivation from the killer of Claude Snelling and Jennifer Armour. It's a nice tidy theory all wrapped up with a bow. Unfortunately, it's not certain that it actually says Snelling or Jennifer. And there are several other words on the page that have no known connection to VR or EAR cases. Again, this could be really informative if there were other evidence proving the EAR was the author. Otherwise, there is a danger of going down a rabbit hole and being distracted from the known facts. At this point, the map feels like another endless time suck. Law enforcement and others have spent countless hours trying to match the exact location of the area depicted there without success. We've seen lots of ideas about partial matches or similar developments, but we are not aware of anyone identifying that full image in the real world. Absent a location match, all we're left with is speculation about the person who drew it and their motivation or purpose in creating it. Once again, there are endless possibilities and dozens of detours to take here. It could have been an attempt to draw an area from memory or maybe just a concept of an ideal community. It contains elements common to many VR and EAR attack areas, but that type of development was so widely popular in the 60s and 70s in California that it's a stretch to give it too much weight or significance. There is an undue amount of debate regarding the sophistication of both the urban planning and skill of the map's drafter. The map is an odd mix. The left side is to scale and exhibits proper drafting techniques. That area contains an excellent freeway ramp, three-dimensional roof elevations, and proper landscaping symbols. That portion of the map appears traced or carefully copied, while the right side has a random mix of scales, symbols, and labeling. The idea that this map was drafted by an urban planning professional is beyond belief. 
I would have been thrown out of my drafting 101 class if I had presented this as even a rough sketch of an idea. No matter how quickly dashed off, nobody trained in drafting would suddenly forget the basics of drawing skill, drafting symbols, scale, and consistency. The right side of this map doesn't speak the professional language trained into someone working in that field. Again, we're not saying that the map couldn't have been drawn by the EAR, but there is nothing contained on the map that is circumstantial evidence pointing to him. It doesn't match a known attack area, it doesn't have certain houses X'd out corresponding to an attack pattern, and it doesn't depict prowling attack or escape routes. We're not arguing with the possibilities here, we're arguing against the proposed theory that 1. We know these papers were created by the EAR. 2. The map was drawn by a professional in a drafting or planning related field. Therefore, 3. The EAR must be employed as an architect, planner, or engineer. To our knowledge, there is no direct evidence connecting these papers to the EAR, and the only circumstantial evidence is their location relative to the place and time of an EAR attack. We disagree that there is any conclusive proof, or even strong evidence, that the map was drawn by a professional, so the conclusion that we know the EAR's likely profession fails the logic test. This feels like a possibly dangerous detour that could lead to an investigative pitfall like tunnel vision, confirmation bias, or anchor traps. One question that we have here is if these papers are a significant investigative lead, why aren't they being shared on the FBI's EAR website? We would love to know whether or not these documents were created by the EAR, but until there is something more solid, we hesitate to take them too seriously. If they are completely unrelated to the case or deliberately left as a distraction, they will not lead to the correct suspect. It would be good for the issue to be resolved one way or the other. A massive PR push could produce some answers, as could tracking down people who lived along the trail in 1978 and seeing if anyone recognizes them. It was frustrating to see a national platform like the recent episode of 48 Hours not being used to better advantage. They could have given a longer look at each document and discussed the contents more specifically. Who was the teacher who gave the Custer assignment? Does anyone else remember having that assignment? Does anyone recognize the handwriting or the location depicted on the map? Knowing where, when, and by whom these pages were created could lead to an important break, or complete dismissal of them as unrelated. Either of these outcomes would be valuable for the investigation. One last thought here relates to our personal frustration over the hypocritical nature of the task force's embrace of the Danville papers. The only thing that provides any possible direct link between the contents and the EAR is the possibility that they refer to Snelling and Jennifer, two of the VR cases. We've come to believe that there will never be any evidence, including these papers and the three pages of shared characteristics we have posted to our site and social media, that will overcome the 40-year refusal to look at the VR and EAR-ONS cases together.